This episode features themes surrounding domestic violence and homelessness. Some listeners may find this content distressing. Listeners' discretion is advised. It's not a national priority yet, and that's what I would like to see. That's what kind of, you know, keeps me going and gets me out of bed in the morning is that actually we've got a long way to go. Today we speak to Moo Bolch. Moo is a social justice and gender equality leader with more than 25 years experience in the non-government and for-purpose private sector. She has a career-long commitment to addressing and preventing violence against women and the LGBTQTI community. By shining a light on vulnerability and promoting human rights in Australia, the UK, Spain and Southeast Asia. This is further demonstrated in her previous work leading peak body domestic violence, New South Wales, from 2013 to 2019, and more recently as Head of Customer Vulnerability at the Commonwealth Bank. Since July this year, Moo has been working as the Director of Primary Prevention at the Inner City Women's and Girls Emergency Centre. Now it's time to talk domestic violence. Hey Moo. Thank you for coming on to our podcast. So we've done a bit of research and noticed you've previously been described as a rebel with a cause in the quest to stop violence against women. What do you think has contributed to you forming this identity and what do you reckon has influenced it? Gosh, I didn't know I'd been described as a rebel with a cause. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Thanks for pulling that one out. I'm not quite sure who, who described me as that. Look, I think I've always had a bit of a passion for, you know, certainly social justice and and peace building as well. You know, uh, ever since I was a fairly young child, I think it was something that I was pretty interested in. I've been lucky enough to be able to do some studies in that area as well. I was born in the UK and when I came to Australia in my early 20s, one of the things that really struck me here was that People didn't mix a lot across different socioeconomic and and ethnic groups. It was quite a strange thing for me, having sort of lived in London and I, I feel like people mix a bit more across difference. And so when I got here, one of the things that I was very conscious of was that I needed to learn a bit about Australian history and culture and, and understand a bit about the way that society works here. Because it is, you know, we're another sort of seemingly post-colonial nation, but there's a lot about this country that if you weren't born here and you didn't, um, you know, go to school and grow up here, then there's lots that you don't understand. And I still, I still have that experience these days as, you know, an adult that's lived here for quite a long time now. I went to University of Queensland and did a master's in Australian studies. And one of the first people I met there was a woman called Lisa Belia, who's sadly no longer with us, an Aboriginal woman who her family were from up that way. And she um, was removed as a child. She was a member of the Stolen Generations. And she and I sat down. We bonded very quickly. She was probably my first, my first friend here in Australia. And she and I both bonded over being adopted and obviously our experiences were very, very different. You know, she'd been removed from her family as a child. I'd grown up a very privileged white middle class, well, working middle class background in the UK. But just comparing our experiences and, and understanding a bit about how different and how similar our experiences were in that space, it really encouraged me to think a lot about, you know, what makes 
Australian men and women, you know, how they relate to one another, what, what the similarities and differences are across cultures, and that really violence is at the heart of much of modern Australian culture. And so thinking about that and interrogating that and then, again, having the privilege to go and live in Southeast Asia and Spain for a while and see the way that this stuff plays out in other countries as well and, and study a bit in the area of peace building has given me a real opportunity to sort of interrogate a bit where we are as men and women and um, diverse genders in Australia and our relationships to each other and our relationships to violence. So there you go. That's quite a, a long rambling uh, yeah. response to your question, but yeah. So it sounds like you've had a really in-depth and rich experiences and obviously um, has really created this passion for you in working within domestic violence. Just with that, where are you at now? So what is your current role? Mm. So, um, again, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be working at, at the Women and Girls Emergency Centre in, uh, you know, our main office is based in Redfern, but we have three or four services that are spread across the inner city Sydney and inner west. We are uh, a women and children's service, crisis service primarily, and that's what we're, you know, government funded to do. But my role, I feel incredibly lucky to be in the role of Director of Primary Prevention. And so primary prevention um, is all about, you know, interrogating why violence occurs and having conversations around gender equality um, and what we need to do to achieve that within our, you know, immediate networks and families and communities, but also more broadly as a society. So exciting times to be working in this stuff. You talk about conversation. Um, Drawing back to that, recently there have been more controversial feminist movements such as Me Too, encouraging women to voice voices to be placed in the forefront of these conversations and has allowed people to address sexual abuse and sexual harassment more directly. What are your thoughts mm. on this increased dialogue surrounding women's lived in experiences? Oh, look, I mean, I don't know a woman who doesn't have lived experience of some kind of violence, honestly, <laughs> which is awful. And I'm, you know, the mother of two pretty young daughters now. And um, honestly, it was the first thing that I thought about when I realised that we were having daughters was, wow, how am I going to protect them from the experiences that I and every other woman older and younger that I know around me has had? You know, um, I think there can only be positivity that comes out of things like Me Too and, you know, Time's Up and all the other uh, movements, some of which which have been going for a really long time and are only just getting recognition now. Excuse me, I'm a bit croaky today. I think it's fascinating that in the last kind of two or three years we um, have begun to move to a space where we respect the voices of, um, of survivors and those of lived experience and you know, having been having worked in the in um, domestic violence, New South Wales, the peak body for for a few years there, I, I saw a real growth in terms of appetite and understanding that you know survivors' voices um, can bring a really unique set of contributions to a conversation around responses to violence, prevention, um, you know, early inter- earlier interventions, those sorts of things. So incredibly valuable. And, you know, I don't know that any of us knew really the breadth and the scale of the problem. I mean, numbers tell one part of the story, but people's stories are so much more powerful, right? Absolutely. Mm. And you talk about you being involved in quite some influential roles. Have these movements changed the way you address 
policy and legislation surrounding domestic violence? Mm. Well, I mean, I think policy is an interesting, um, the creation and the development and the interrogation of policy is a, is a very interesting part of the world. Um, it's not something that I, um, you know, studied and have a, a deep background in. I've certainly had a fair bit of experience in the last, say, five to ten years, um, but only really within the New South Wales state context, a little bit within the national space as well. Certainly, uh, I think about the way that policy is developed and the disconnection between, you know, quite complex and, you know, almost disconnected policies from the experiences of you know, both victim survivors and also the services on the ground that are that are working with them. I think there is there has been a you know a gradual and sometimes quite deliberate chipping away of uh, of public servants, and unfortunately, the the consequence of that means that you lose the expertise and the understanding of why and where things have developed and the importance of quality frontline service responses to people who are impacted by domestic and family violence. And you only really have to look at a comparison between, you know, Victoria and New South Wales and the response that has been or the set of responses that sit across the crisis and and early intervention and prevention spaces and the level of funding and investment and the real vision that, that kind of sits alongside that in Victoria uh, versus <laughs> what we're dealing with in New South Wales, which is a very, um, you know, justice-focused response to violence. And, of course, those, you know, uh, victim survivors need to be able to practice justice responses. That's really important for some people. But for others, particularly for some communities, that's not what they want, you know. And we are a long way from being able to offer people a range of, you know, responses that meet their needs in terms of, you know, responses to violence yeah. um, and recovery. So... We're currently living in changing times. Um, for example, the new gag law that's been put in place in Victoria, which silences survivors from naming themselves in cases where the perpetrator has been found guilty. Um, you could also say there's been digital movements and social media platforms have changed their policies and have kind of become really censored. So I question whether we're becoming more progressive or regressive as a society and what do you reckon the consequences of these approaches are? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think um, I think we're just living in, um, and this is going to, you know, made, age me and make me sound like a right old git, which I am. <laughs> I'm in my late 40s now. I, I feel that the last few years um, we are now living in times where people are very fearful about what they say on the internet or, you know, publicly in um, in any kind of space for fear of litigious responses to that. Mm-hmm. I also feel that we're living in times where people are ready to jump on anything that you say and, you know, the levels of bullying and violence that occur on social media and, um, you know, in face-to-face as well in, in real life, but, you know, more and more digitally are just staggering and that's, you know, something that it doesn't matter whether you choose to, you know, interact with social media platforms or not. It's just I think everybody is aware that that is growing and that it is a horrific problem and that the violence that used to occur in people's homes or, you know, workplaces or wherever is becoming more and more prolific, you know, online and in those spaces that are really hard to, to regulate. 
and to and to moderate as well. So, yeah, I do. I, I fear that we're living in times where the, you know, we we talk about people's right to be able to express their opinion, and that's you know absolutely a right that we all have within a democracy. But I I feel that we have lost that sense of the damage and harm that we're doing to other people when we do it, and and that's partly because it does occur in online spaces so prolifically but it's also because I think we you know we we don't sit and talk about what respect really looks like whether it's in the in a school environment um you know this is this is partly what we're talking about when we talk about primary prevention we need to be talking to kids from the youngest ages about the impacts of bullying and violence and homophobia and racism and we at some point have got really scared of talking to kids about it and really fearful of being attacked as adults if we talk about that stuff too. Mm. So in saying that, what strategies do you think are involved in kind of making this change and and putting that change into action? I know you said um, that we need to start talking to our children about it, but Mm. there are any other strategies? Yeah, I mean, this has to be a whole whole of society, whole of community thing, right? I mean, it's a good five, six, seven years now that we've been calling the levels of violence against women and um, and children, um, both in the sense of intimate partner violence, you know, so one woman a week being being killed by a partner or a former partner, the levels of violence against women with disability in, you know, institutional or non-institutional settings, the levels of violence against Aboriginal women and children, you know, like... This is stuff that sits across. We know we know what the numbers are. We know the size of the problem, and we've been calling it an epidemic and a you know all sorts of big superlative words for a long time now. But actually, the action that needs to sit alongside that has been dragging along relatively slowly in comparison. And that's why I use the you know the example of Victoria earlier because whilst Victoria might not be perfect in all sorts of ways, they have had a sort of soul searching through the Royal Commission into Family Violence. And certainly a number of the recommendations from that Royal Commission uh, have really driven quite substantial, um, you know, change and investment and accountability for services, you know, working together. And part of that is this real focus on prevention, you know, the the fact that actually we know what needs to happen in order to ensure that uh, in a generation's time, We don't have kids coming to us saying, you know, you knew about these rates of violence and you knew what needed to happen and yet you didn't do anything about it. Mm. Um, You know, we have the world's first prevention framework um, under our watch, the National Prevention Foundation. We've got substantial research being undertaken by them and by other, you know, national researchers in the prevention space saying in societies where there is more gender equality and where violence-supportive attitudes are challenged and, you know, held less broadly by the population and in places where men and women's, you know, work and contribution is is equally valued in places where boys and girls are encouraged to meet their potential as, you know, human beings, not as a, a member of a agenda that we will have less violence against women ultimately so it's it's I mean it's complex but it's simple as well really we've got um some pretty good solid precepts to work on and a you know a decent timeline to work on it but it needs to be something that sits across all of society it's not just the job of education it's not just the job of early childhood educators or schools or universities or 
you know, it has to be every um, employer, whether they're a small or large business, it has to be, you know, every, every single, it has to be sporting clubs. It has to be wherever we're working or playing or living, you know, religious leaders. And we have some great examples of where this stuff has been taken on and is working really, really well. But it it's not a national priority yet. And that's what I would like to see. That's what kind of, you know, keeps me going and gets me out of bed in the morning is that actually we've got a long way to go when it comes to preventing this. Yeah, it sounds like you emphasise a real collaborative and inclusive approach to targeting this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you just make this one um, sector or person's responsibility, then um, we are going to be constantly dealing with a, a set of crises. Whereas if we look at this as a as a whole of society responsibility, a bit like, you know, it's I'm not the first person to draw this comparison, but it's a bit like drink driving or seatbelts or smoking or any of those other big public health messages that have been, you know, really well funded uh, by government and taken on by governments across the country um, and really driven by big advertising campaigns backed up with, you know, the evidence building stuff. If this, if we are serious about um, managing this and changing uh, the reality, then it has to be in that scale. So from I guess, targeting it from a perspective, what would you say, what message would you give one individual to create this change? And I think the message is simple. It's that we all have not only the remit but the responsibility to make this change. So I think about um, I think about the next generation that is coming through, whether they're coming through as you know potential workers, potential social workers um, in the domestic and family violence or um, sexual assault sector, whether they're coming through as teachers or you know youth workers or um, bankers or wherever. Well, I have a responsibility as somebody that's been on this planet for you know almost five decades now. Um, to try and, you know, support things to be a little bit better than they were, you know, a generation ago for for my parents and my grandparents before that. Um, Like when we think about how much expectations, women's expectations have changed in terms of workforce participation in study, you know, being able to make choices about our bodies, being able to make choices about our, you know, our families and the way that we um, structure our families and which communities we participate in, that stuff has changed radically from, you know, um, even 20 or 30 years ago. And so, therefore, I think um, younger women are coming up now and saying, actually, you know, my expectation is that I will be treated um, equally. And so we all have a responsibility, a, a, a part to play in that. It's not, it's not something that I or anybody else can do alone. It has to be a whole of, uh, a, a whole of community. What's the word? Like a compact, like an agreement that we're going to move this forward together because we know, you know, what the consequences are if they're not. And um, yeah, it's it's time for us to take individual responsibility, but also responsibility as people who participate in multiple communities and multiple networks you know we all have influence right in our lives I think it's interesting that you say that because we do have all these strategies and policies and things in place but maybe that's where we're going wrong maybe we're not putting um enough of a focus and an emphasis on collaboration and partnership I mean I don't think um I think the most effective change is always the most effective positive change is always when we do it in partnership with others right and when you find a group of um 
of like-minded people around you, but when you're also willing to sit down and have those conversations with people who might not see the world in the same way that you do. Mm. And this is part of, um, I guess, what is, um, you know, challenging going back to that conversation around, you know, the internet and bullying and violence and the sorts of things that we see going on online is um, when you when you are disconnected from the face-to-face connection and you're not sitting down and, you know, sometimes putting yourself out of your comfort zone and saying, actually, you and I may have different opinions, but it'd be really good if we could sit down and talk through because fundamentally it doesn't matter where people come from, very, very few people will say it's okay to, um, you know, abuse um, a woman um, or a child, you know, particularly when we're talking about things like, you know, child sexual assault or um domestic and family violence however you have those conversations around the types of behaviors and that's where we see the excuses and it's you know the the, where we would like to see that change is um shifting community attitudes towards the sorts of the behaviors that are um that are violence supportive um and it's it's often because people just haven't thought about it or they don't realize they don't know um and those attitudes are, are ones that may have been held you know generationally for a long time um, and just be socially acceptable. So you're really emphasising the point that we need to start connecting with people and opening up spaces for discussion. So I guess really bringing in different perspectives and being willing to engage in those conversations. So thank you so much for joining us today, Moo. We really appreciate your insights and I think it was a really valuable discussion. Yeah, definitely. Really appreciate it. Um, it's extremely insightful and we've had such... Um, a lot of experiences to kind of play and put in um, into your responses as well. So really, really, really happy to help. 